Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. Tired of your tentmate's flashlights shining in your eyes in camp? Bring an empty half-gallon milk jug or clear water bottle. Simply strap a headlamp around it, and it becomes a soft white lantern for everyone to see the light. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver. And today, we had so much boxing this past week that I'm not sure if we're going to have time for a Q&A session. I might throw in one question. Maybe. We will see. Because we had some of the best fighters in the world fight this past week. Let's start with Tuesday morning from Japan. We had a unification at 108 pounds, the light flyweight uh, division, as we had the WBC champion, Kenshiro Taraji, go up against the WBA uh, light flyweight champion, Hiroto Kayaguchi, in an incredible fight. Kenshiro Taraji has has the potential to be one of the five greatest Japanese fighters of all time. He's that special. He throws punches and bunches. He's nonstop. Everything's behind that tremendous left jab of his. Kayaguchi has a similar style, but he doesn't throw as many punches as Taraji, and that's why... I thought Taraji was going to win going into the fight. And Taraji put on, and this is saying a lot because Taraji has been phenomenal since becoming a world champion. But Taraji put on, in my opinion, the finest performance of his career as he fought the toughest fighter of his career. And he shined. He dominated except for parts of the fifth and seventh round. In the fifth round, early in the fifth round, he dropped uh, Kayaguchi with a beautiful right cross. Boom! Down goes Kayaguchi. And Kayaguchi looked like he was out. But middle of the round, while Taraji was going for the finish, Kayaguchi staggered Taraji with his own right hand. And they went back and forth until the bell rang. Round five, one of the best rounds of the year. A contender for round of the year. Round six saw Kayaguchi tried to capitalize on the prior success he had the round before. But Taraji, because he never stops throwing that jab, ladies and gentlemen, one thing about great fighters is that they find their way back by relying on a great left jab. And that's what Taraji did in round six. He regained the momentum that he had lost the round before. And then in the seventh round, Great back and forth because Kayaguchi landed some hell of a right crosses. But late in the round, Kenshiro Taraji landed a spectacular right cross. Another one that buckled 
Kaiguchi. Kaiguchi bounced off the ropes. Referee stopped the fight. Kenshiro Taraji now the WBC and WBA light flyweight champion, 108-pound champion of the world, the best 108-pound fighter on the planet, and look for him to continue on his road to legendary Japanese icon status. The man is that good. I enjoy watching him fight each and every time out. Congratulations to the great Kenshiro Taraji in right now the biggest win of his career. And that night, um, you had some tremendous fights that night. You had Jonathan Gonzalez regain his WBO Junior Flyweight title. And now I would love to see, and now this makes sense, sort of like now we could have the WBO champion, Jonathan Gonzalez, who defended his title with a solid 12-round decision over Shikuchi Iwata. Now that Taraji is the WBC and WBA champion, let's see him face Gonzalez to try and unify the WBO title with the WBC and WBA championship. Taraji, Ducks Nobody, Jonathan Gonzalez for a decade now has been fighting the best 105, 108-pound fighters on the planet. Let's continue that with these guys facing each other. I love to see it. And, of course, the fight's got to happen in Japan. And Jonathan Gonzalez, no stranger to the fight in Japan as he fought this past Tuesday on the undercard winning his fight. So let's get that fight popping, being that they both fought on the same undercard with the same promoter this past Tuesday morning. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we go to Saturday night's fights. First, we go to the fights that happened in Minneapolis. Tremendous card. Five fights worth talking about. So let's go first with the undercard because the undercard was very solid. And the card was very solid. Um, Two fights that were aired on the Showtime Now app, I believe it was. I saw the replay because I was at work. And then you had the three main, main fights on Showtime, the regular Showtime cable channel first you had Julian J-Rock Williams in his first fight in over a year and he went and defeated a uh, journeyman in Rolando Mancilla easy win for Julian J-Rock Williams eight round fight I guess to get him back into 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 uh, the groove because he hadn't fought in 13 months but he wins a lopsided eight round decision to start his comeback and I believe this fight was at middleweight so now he's at middleweight no longer is he at 154 pounds then we had a great uh, another great comeback a couple of weeks ago I, I attended the Deontay Wilder it's three weeks ago I, found, I, the, I attended the, the Deontay Wilder Robert Hellenius fight at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. The main semifinal was Caleb Plant knocking out Anthony Durrell with a spectacular left hook. Well, Anthony Durrell's brother, Andre Durrell, who in my opinion 
is the better fighter of the two, without a doubt, the, the more talented one. Anthony has the, uh, has more heart. Andre has clearly the better skills. Andre, 39 years old now, fought the 37-year-old Uniski Gonzalez. So we had a crossroads-type fight, and Andre looked great in, in stopping Gonzalez in the 10th round. Welcome back, Andre Durrell, who's still dangerous. He's at he's a light heavyweight now, and he is dangerous. He's a dangerous 175-pound fighter. We will see what the future holds in store for Andre Durrell, who's trying to get that. He's one of the best fighters in the history of boxing, never to win the world title. So we will see what happens with Andre Durrell. I root, I root heavy for Andre Durrell because... I've I've heard through people from Flint, Michigan, how great of a dude he is in real life. So, um, kudos to Andre Durrell. Then we went to the main card on Showtime, and we had another middleweight. And this was like the night of the middleweights, because this was the third straight middleweight fight on the card. Feel, let me just make sure I, I say this guy's name correctly. Fyodor Cherkasin. Won a 10-round decision over Nathaniel Gallimore. And Cherkison has a style similar to Dimitri Baval. He throws a lot of jabs. He throws combinations. He's an aggressive boxer. Totally dominated the rugged Gallimore, Gallimore in winning a lopsided 10-round decision. Fyodor has tremendous potential. And the 160-pound division is now... A much better division with the likes of Erislandi Lara, uh, Cherkison, Charlo possibly moving up after he destroys Tim Zhu. And, uh, of course, uh, now uh, Julian J. Rock Williams. So we will see. Then we had Brian Mendoza knockout former junior middleweight champion Jason Rosario in the fifth round. Beautiful right uppercut. Rosario went down and it was a wrap. Good night. And Jason Rosario, good night on your career. All right? you, you've suffered two brutal knockouts in less than two years. First to Charlo and now to Brian Mendoza. Time for you to give it up, big man. Time for you, Jason, to retire. You've taken one too many beatings the past couple of years. You're a shell of a, of what you used to be. Then we went on to the main event. And this guy, I've been telling people that this young man from Cuba, David Morrell, is the real deal. David Morrell is as talented at 168 pounds as any fighter on the planet. And that includes Canelo and David Benavides. And you want to throw Caleb Plant in that mix? Go ahead. PBC has something here. Canelo refuses to fight David Benavides or David Morrell. He refused, or Charlo. He refuses to fight any of those three. So the PBC could do their own tournament. They already signed a fight between David Benavides and Caleb Plant early next year. Well, ladies and gentlemen, how about putting Morrell in the ring with Charlo? A four-man tournament. You already got one fight set. You get the other fight set, and then you match the winners. By that time, Canelo had no choice but to fight one of them. And if Canelo doesn't fight any of them, fuck them. You just 
win that tournament and then you keep defending the title and you will be you will be decided by the fans. Fuck the media. The fans will decide that the winner of those between those four, the guy that uh goes above the smoke and is left standing amongst Charlo, Benavidez, Plant, and Morrell is the true king at 168 pounds. Because if Canelo refused to face any of them, fuck Canelo. Speaking of Canelo. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, before we go to Canelo, so we had David Morrell. I'm going to try to say this guy's uh, name correctly. Aidos, your boss, your your bossinoli, your your bossinoli, your boss, your your bossinoli, your bossinoli. Well, your bossinoli, his bossinoli, my bossinoli. Doesn't matter what nuli, what kind of boss he might think he is. David Morrell won every second of every minute of every round before finally putting him away in the 12th round. David Morrell did what he wanted to do. He boxed from the outside. He came forward with that tremendous jab and and combination punching. He did what he wanted to do all night long in his most impressive victory of his career. David Morrell is a problem for all 168-pound fighters. Ladies and gentlemen, he only has had seven, eight pro fights. It doesn't matter. The man has that Cuban, that 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 Cuban style. He has that Cuban uh, pedigree. Cuban amateur boxers. They fight the best of the world just in Cuba alone when they're in amateur boxers. And when they come up to the pros and they defect to the United States, they are hell for everybody, whether it's Luis Ortiz, Guillermo Rigondeaux, Eris Landi Lara, Joel Casamayor, a young Yorkese Gamboa before he became a punch-drunk zombie. All of these are Cuban excellent fighters of the last decade to 15 years who give their, give their opponents hell. David Morrell continues that tradition, and he is a phenom. And ladies and gentlemen, he's someone to reckon with at 168 pounds. And in my opinion, he's as gifted as Benavidez, Canelo, and Caleb Plant. And there's a good shot of him being the one, after all is said and done, the number one man at 168 pounds. We will see. 
we will see. And I mentioned earlier, Benavides and Caleb Plant have signed to fight each other. And another fight that was announced during the Showtime card for December 17th. And I can't wait for this fight to happen. And I'm hoping by hook or crook that this fight lands in Brooklyn. Because if this fight lands in Brooklyn, I will be there. It'll be my Christmas gift to myself. If the fight happens in Brooklyn. And that's Mitchell Rivera, Mr. I look, they, I think, I'm telling everybody I look like Muhammad Ali, but I look more like Felix Tito Trinidad against a guy who I consider one of the top five young fighters on the planet. This man has can't miss, um, can't miss potential, and that's Frank the Ghost Martin. Tremendous, tremendous lightweight fight because the winner sets himself up to fight Tank, being that they're all under the PBC umbrella. I will give my prediction the week of the fight. I will not talk about what I think, who's going to win today, but I am excited about that fight. Then we go to Dubai. And in and in Dubai, you had uh, Dimitri Bavol against Gilberto Zuldo Ramirez. Exactly as I predicted it happened, Bavol dominated this fight. Bavol's the better fighter. Ladies and gentlemen, Ramirez has struggled in a few fights. Bavol has never struggled. Bavol has been a dominant world champion. He doesn't lose rounds. Ask Canelo Alvarez, who was totally outschooled, outclassed by Bavol in Bavol's fight. Ladies and gentlemen, Bavol is going to be my fighter of the year because he whipped Canelo. And he ripped Ramirez. He went and beat two Mexican fighters who the Mexican fans felt were unbeatable. And he undressed both fighters. Saturday night in Dubai, he did what he wanted to do against Gilberto Zuda Ramirez. Ramirez looked like a rank amateur. Bavol, behind that battering ram of a left jab. Bavol has a top five jab in the sport. The only one, in my opinion, that has a better jab than him definitively in the sport active today is Nayoa Inoue. Other than that, Bavol could have the best jab in boxing. And behind that battering ram a jab and throwing combinations and taking it to Ramirez, and Ramirez had no answer, did nothing but just take a beating, get thoroughly outboxed, outpunched, outslugged. It was all Bavol as he thoroughly kicked Ramirez's ass to retain his WBA light heavyweight championship. Let's hope that he finally gets to fight Arta Betabiev next year for the undisputed light heavyweight championship world and for claim as the number one light heavyweight in the planet. In my opinion right now, Bavol's the number one guy. But Betabiev is a beast. And while Bavol's the better fighter, Betabiev is like a fucking machine, a machine, a light heavyweight Ivan Drago. Well, he just keeps coming and coming and coming. He's a fucking robot. We will see if that fight happens next year. I would love to see it. Love to see it. Eddie Hearn and Bob Arum, these two clowns have to sit down and try to make this fight. Let's do it. So that was what was a very, very, very long week of boxing. And... Before I get into my historical uh, bi- bi- biography that I do on a weekly basis, this week will be my number 17th 
greatest fighter of the last 45 years, B-Hop Bernard Hopkins. I have time for a couple of questions. So let's get to the Ask Rob Silver segment of the program. Let me go to Twitter. Ask Rob Silver, A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-L-V-A. Ask Rob Silver. Hashtag Ask Rob Silver on Twitter if you want me to answer your questions. So let me get to the... Let me get to the Twitter, all right? And um, first, my friend from um, Australia, Long Tran, has a two-part question. First question, why does these clowns, the Paul brothers, get so much publicity? They are not real boxers. Is this, does this mean casual fans want to see circus shows rather than real boxing fights? No, because uh, Jake Paul's last two pay-per-views have flopped his fight with Hasim Rockman that was supposed to take place in August was canceled not because Rockman refused to dry himself out and weigh uh, 20 pounds less than he ever did before but because Master Square Garden was less than half full it would have been a financial flop so they used the Rockman refusal to lose the weight as an excuse it's sad when you can't sell our Madison Square Garden when you have one of the hottest female boxers on the planet, Armando Serrano, who had sold out her fight against Katie Teller in Madison Square Garden, her prior fight, in minutes. And in this fight, no one gave a fuck because no one gives a fuck anymore about Jake Paul. Period. He's a fucking circus act. He's a clown. All right. You've got certain members of the media, including Max Kellerman, which is part of your second question, who think that th- that these guys, are gr- the Paul brothers are great for the sport. No, they're not. They're fucking idiots who fight circus animals and MMA fighters. They fight no real boxers. The minute Jake Paul steps in with a real boxer, there's a good chance he might die. On to your second part of the question. I try not to talk about these circus animals on the show, but Long Tran is a long-time listener. He's been listening to me for over a decade, so I will uh, give him the benefit of doubt. Second question, why are there so many sports media, for example, Max Kellerman openly saying the Paul's brothers save boxing? Why do they need to kiss the Paul's brother's ass? Max Kellerman kisses Jake and Logan's Paul's ass all the time. I do not know why. I used to respect Max Kellerman more than any other boxing analyst in boxing. But more and more, he's becoming a caricature of what he used to be. You watch Max Kellerman's Max Unboxing, and sometimes it is hard to watch because, A, he's a shill for Bob Arum and Tom Rank. I never saw... Max do that before. He's become that today. Recently, he blamed Errol Spence for the Terrence Crawford fight not happening, even though both parties are equally to blame, in my opinion. But he showed a bias towards Terrence Crawford, probably probably because Terrence Crawford for years was a top-ranked fighter, and before that, HBO fighter, in which Max was working for both networks when Terrence Crawford was working, was fighting on both networks. So Max Kellerman's credibility is almost done. It's almost shot. And 
it's it's criminal because you know I like I I still do like Max. Um, his brother was murdered, and I know that affected Max. His brother was murdered like uh, fifteen or twenty years ago by that bastard James Kirkland, who who uh not James Kirkland, what was his name? James the Hammer, James the Harlem Hammer, not James Kirkland. James Kirkland's still around. Um. I forgot the piece of shit that killed Max's brother, Sam. Sam came to the young man's uh, rescue after the man was suspended from the New York State Athletic Commission for knocking out his opponent after he had lost after the bell with 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 uh, with with, bear, with, with, with gloves off his hand. They were about to embrace and he sucker punched him. <sighs> and, and then... Um, I don't know what happened between Sam and James, but James murdered him, bludgeoned him with a hammer, and that really I think that really affected Max back then. He t- I think he took a year off from um, broadcasting, came back working for HBO, and Max had gotten to the point where I said, man, Max could be right next to Roy Jones, and they did a lot of fights together. The number two or one A and one B boxing analyst on the planet, but ever since he's worked for ESPN, and then with his Max on boxing, it, his credibility is shot. He gives he gives Jake Paul too much credit. He gives him on air time. He has Mike Coppinger on there all the time, and they're sitting there and and they show their bias towards ESPN top rank fighters because they both work for ESPN. And top rank. So it just doesn't make sense to me, man. I'm just... Ugh. The poor brothers are circus animals. And they're both pieces of shit. And I'll leave it at that. All right. Might be able to answer another question. I've got time. Let me see. Okay. Uh, from my fellow Boricua, Jesus Salas. Jesus asks... And this is a non-boxing question. Two of them. If LeBron became an NBA owner, do you see him doing a better job than Michael Jordan? LeBron has done piss me off, Jesus, with his comments about Kyrie Irving the other day. Um, I'm not going to get into the Kyrie Irving situation on here. This is a boxing podcast, and that is for a different platform at a different time. But in my opinion, LeBron sold out Kyrie Irving. And will he be a better owner than Michael Jordan? I think LeBron, by his actions the last couple of years, is setting himself up to become an NBA owner after his playing career is over. Will he be a better owner than Michael Jordan? I say it'd be the same level. Because uh, just because you're an all-time great and in my 46 years of watching box, uh, basketball and I no longer watch the NBA... All right, and it has, this has nothing to do with Kyrie. I had stopped watching the NBA before the season started. I stopped watching the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NFL because that's unnecessary stress on a life of mine that has had a very stressful year. Now, I'm loving life. It's just boxing, slow soul R&B slow jams, and hanging out with my 17-year-old nephew. My mother is back and out the hospital and thriving physically and the new lady in my life and her daughter that's who I'm spending my time with that's what I'm dealing with right 
I don't need those other fucking sports. Boxing is the only sport I deal with right now. So before what happened with Kyrie Irving, I already stopped watching the NBA. I had stopped watching the NBA the minute my Mets were eliminated from the playoffs a month ago. Because I was like, you know what? This shit ain't fucking. Well, why am I here uh, fucking dying with every pitch with the Mets when, I, when real life matters much more than these fucking team sports, right? At least in boxing, the individual is an individual sport. So you're not, you're not relying on other people. It's you versus the other guy, right? One-on-one, mano-on-mano. LeBron will probably have the same type of success, Jesus. Um, and he's definitely going to own a team because by his actions the last two years, it's all but a, a, a given. Second question. If you have the chance to pick the brain of five people you admire, who do you pick can be a social, sporting, or arts figure? Okay. Well, Muhammad Ali and Roberto Clemente would be two of the five. Malcolm X, three. Dr. Khalid Muhammad, four. Who would be my fifth? You got Ali, Clemente, Dr. Khalid Muhammad, Malcolm X. Who would be my fifth in my entire lifetime? Hmm. Is it only four? Who would be my fifth? Let me look at this question again. Could be a social, sporting, or arts figure. Well, Okay, I, I I just figured it out. I just figured it out. My brother that played a man called Hawk. What was my brother's name? A man called Hawk. You know, early signs of dementia. He was also one of the co-stars of American History X. Why does my brother's name not come to... What was my brother's name? God damn. Avery Brooks, yes. Jesus, Avery Brooks is one of the greatest men that ever lived. And you know what? Bo Jackson has an honorary mention. Because Bo Jackson, I did a podcast on Bo Jackson on another platform. Bo Jackson is one of the greatest men that ever lived. He overcame a learning disability with a very severe stuttering problem. To become one the greatest athlete ever seen, as he was a all star in both football and baseball, but a he ruptured his hip and he was never able to play football again. But even though he ruptured his hip, he still came back with one leg, with one good leg to hit sixteen home runs in one season with the Chicago White Sox on the same team as Frank Thomas, the ninety three team that went to the that won the national, the American League West and went to the playoffs, lost to the world champion Toronto Blue Jays. But since he retired from sports after the 1994 season, Bo Jackson has been a philanthropist and an entrepreneur. He opened up a bank outside of Chicago, suburbs of Chicago. He has donated millions to the Don Trout, the, to the Don Trout, the Down Trouting. Throughout his post-playing career. And him and his wife, Linda, 
have had a partnership in many, many successful endeavors. Bo Jackson, and then when we get to uh, Avery Brooks, Avery Brooks is one of the greatest thespians in the history of the world. Avery Brooks, a great actor. Man Call Hawk, Star Trek, where he was the, I believe it was Deep Space Nine, he was the commander, the first black commander, the only black commander, I think, for the Star Trek Enterprise, right? Spencer for Hire, Man Call Hawk, Hawk, of course, he's played Hawk, the iconic Robert B. Parker character from the Spencer novel and then the Spencer for Hire TV series and Man Call Hawk TV series, which was only given 13 episodes. That was a great show. Great show. And then, of course, his character as the principal on American History X as the guy who turned, who helped turn Edward Norton's life around from being a Nazi, evil murderer to becoming a good dude who began to respect people of color other than his own. Uh, Avery Brooks, opera singer, pro- professor at Rutgers University of African American Studies, unprecedented the the talent this man has. That's on that Paul Robinson level. So, Avery Brooks, Bo Jackson, Doctor Khaled Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, Roberto Clemente. I mentioned somebody else, and I forgot who that other person I mentioned. Clemente, Ali, Dr. Khaled, Bo Jackson, Avery Brooks, and because of early signs of dementia, I forgot who that other dude was. (laughs) All right, let me see. How long have we been going on in this podcast? Because I know that Bernard Hopkins uh, bio was pretty long. Let me see if I get one more question in. Hold on. I think uh, my man, um, nice guy, Eddie, who always throws in questions, asked me a question. I want to get it in. So let's go to nice guy, Eddie. All right, here we go. Okay, here's Eddie's question. Is there a difference between a paper champion fighter and a just unexperienced fighter champ? Like with Zerdo. Would you say he lacked the good fights experience or adequate training, and that's some of what made the difference between his fight against Bavall and, let's say, Canelo's fight? Or was he just a paper fighter? Was his record completely padded, and he never really fought anyone? There's probably a few questions in there. I'm just wondering. I'm disappointed with Zerto's performance, even though I think we all knew Bavall was going to come out on top. Yeah, uh... Zerto's biggest wins were against Jesse Hart. He really, really didn't beat anybody on Bavall's level. Bavall doesn't lose rounds. Ramirez has lost rounds. Right? Bavall's the better boxer. Ramirez, yes, a punishing puncher. But 99 times out of 100, the gifted boxer beats the gifted puncher. You can hit as hard as you can. But once you face a superior boxer, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. It's the reason Mike Tyson lost to Buster Douglas and Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis. They were superior boxers the night they faced Mike Tyson. Right? It's the reason Julio Cesar Chavez got schooled by Pernell Whitaker and then Frankie Randall Chavez and Oscar De La Hoya. Right? 
It's the reason Canelo was schooled by both Floyd Mayweather and Dimitri Baval. There's many, many examples. Floyd Mayweather versus Diego Corrales. Jeff Lacey getting his ass handed to him by Joe Calzaghe. Tito Trinidad getting bludgeoned and never being the same again versus Bernard Hopkins. The technician normally wins. Ramirez had no shot against Baval, period. I don't know why people thought Ramirez had a shot, but no. Baval is a future Hall of Famer. Ramirez is going to be one of those exciting fighters that never becomes an elite fighter, period. End of story. Once again, nice guy, Eddie. Thanks for your question. And now we go on to my 45th greatest fighters of the last 45. I mean, my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 series. Series of articles I've written on fightgamemedia.com. Right now on the website, I'm up to 10. Uh, numbers 9 and number 8 fighters of the last 45 years should be coming up soon. Today, I'm reading my 17th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And that's the legendary Bernard B-Hop Hopkins. I wrote this article seven months ago. So now we're in, we're in, um, so we're in November now. So this article came out April of this year. And I wrote, Bernard Hopkins is one of the most interesting and fascinating fighters in the history of boxing. As a youth, he was a hardcore criminal in the mean streets of Philadelphia, resulting in an armed robbery conviction of up to 18 years when he was only 17. After serving five years, Hopkins was released on parole. He vowed never to go back to a life of crime and in turn prison. While, inca while incarcerated, he began boxing. Like many before him, boxing was his ticket to freedom and prosperity. It was that hunger and determination that helped make him the 17th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. After losing his pro debut in 1988, Hopkins won his next 22 fights and earned a shot at the vacant IBF middleweight title. Unfortunately, he ran into the most talented and gifted fighter of his generation, Roy Jones. On May 22, 1993, Jones thoroughly outboxed Hopkins to win an easy 12-round decision to win the vacant title. That loss, like the earlier setbacks in Hopkins' life, only made him stronger and that much more determined to one day become champion. After a few tune-up fights, Hopkins traveled to Ecuador to fight their native son, Segundo Mercado, on December 17, 1994, in another attempt to win the IBF title, which was vacated by Jones. Jones had vacated the belt the month before after thoroughly outclassing James Tony to win the IBF super middleweight crown. Despite being knocked down twice, Hopkins dominated the majority of the fight, yet the fight was scored a draw. Once again, Hopkins failed in his quest to become champion. The third time would be the charm. On April 7th, 1995, Hopkins put on the first of many virtual virtuoso performances as a middleweight. He outboxed and battered McCarter in the rematch, causing the referee to stop the fight. At the age of 30, Hopkins was finally a middleweight champion. It would be a division he would dominate for 10 years and set a record with 20 defenses. It was one of the most incredible title reigns in the history of boxing as Hopkins defeated one great fighter after another thoroughly and convincingly. Not one time was he given a gift decision. On March 16, 1996, Hopkins defended against the IBF number one contender Joe Lipsy. Despite being beating several tomato cans, many so-called many so experts 
pick Lipsy to beat Hopkins. In the fourth round, Hopkins landed an incredible five-pound combination, culminating with a signature right cross that put the undefeated Lipsy to sleep. Despite only being 29 at the time, the beating was such that Lipsy never fought again. It wouldn't be the last time Hopkins ruined a man's career. In 2001, Don King, in conjunction with Madison Square Garden, held a tournament to crown an undisputed, undisputed middleweight champion of the world. Hopkins was holding this tournament as a showcase for the number one star of his stable, Puerto Rican legend Felix Trinidad. Trinidad was 28 in his prime. He was undefeated and one of the most explosive fighters in boxing history. In his fight against WBA champion William Joppy, Trinidad destroyed him inside five rounds. This beating, coupled with Hopkins' workmanlike decision over WBC champion Keith Holmes and Hopkins also being 36, made Trinidad the favorite in the historic middleweight unification fight held in September of 2001. The fight was originally scheduled for September 15, 2001, but the events of 9-11 postponed the fight until September 29th. My father had died a little bit over a year before this fight occurred. My father was a proud Puerto Rican, and Trinidad was one of his favorite fighters of all time. The last fight we saw together on television before he died was Trinidad's destruction of Mamadou Thiam. I attended the September 29, 2001 fight at Madison Square Garden. It was the first fight I ever attended without the presence of my father. While he, had, while he would have rooted hard for Trinidad, he would have known what I knew. Trinidad was tailor-made for Hopkins. Hopkins was a master boxer counterpuncher. The only fighters that gave Hopkins problems in his career were slick and quick boxers. Trinidad was a deadly boxer puncher, but as displayed in his fight against Oscar De La Hoya, he had a very difficult time dealing with a fighter who moved and gave him angles. I told everyone I knew that Trinidad didn't have a shot in the world to beat Hopkins. That night, Hopkins put on the performance of a, laugh, of a lifetime. He knew what Trinidad was going to do before Trinidad did. It was a massive display of counter-punching and defense. Trinidad took a terrible, terrible beating for 12 rounds. Finally, in the 12th round, after going down from a booming right cross, Trinidad laid on the canvas a battered and beaten man. Trinidad was never the same after this fight. Hopkins, at the age of 36, was on top of the world and held the title for another four years until losing a close decision to Jermaine Taylor on July 16, 2005. He would lose the subsequent rematch five months later. At the age of 40, Hopkins looked all but done. Shockingly, he began a second run at 175 pounds. On June 10, 2006, the 41-year-old Hopkins faced the reigning 175-pound light heavyweight champion, Antonio Tarver. Tarver was the best 175-pound fighter in the world and was coming off two dominating wins over the legendary Roy Jones. Tarver was a huge 3-1 favor, and rightfully so. That night in Atlantic City, Hopkins turned back the clock as he gave Tarver a similar boxing lesson and beating he had, he had administered to Trinidad. Hopkins batted Tarver for the entire 12 rounds and winning a lopsided decision en route to becoming a two-division champion. It wouldn't be the last time Hopkins shocked the boxing world. On April 19, 2008, Hopkins was thoroughly outboxed by Joe, Cal Joe Calzaghe, losing his 175-pound pound title in the process at 43 years old the entire boxing world was clamoring for the self-proclaimed executioner to retire instead hopkins signed to face the 160 pound king and power puncher kelly pavlik the 26 year old pavlik was coming off two convinced convincing victories over taylor the same man who had ended hopkins legendary middleweight reign 
Pavlik was an overwhelming 4-1 favorite, and many were afraid for Hopkins' well-being, including myself. On the night of October 18, 2008, Hopkins once again defeated Father Time as he gave Pavlik a one-sided beating in winning another lopsided decision. I was amazed that evening watching Hopkins do what he wanted to do against a highly skilled puncher 17 years younger. Pavlik never looked the same that night and would eventually retire four years later. In one of the saddest fights of all time, Hopkins faced his longtime ne nemesis Jones on April 3, 2010. The 45-year-old Hopkins dominated the 41-year-old Jones to finally capture his revenge 17 years after losing. Unfortunately, this win, win didn't mean a hill of beans to me. Roy had no business fighting as he was coming off a first-round knockout loss in his last fight. It was a sloppy and pathetic fight, a fight in which Bernard dominated despite looking very old himself. Once again, the boxing world urged the 45-year-old Hopkins to retire. Unbeknownst to us, he still had some gas left in the tank. On December 18, 2010, Hopkins' campaign against Haitian-born WBC and Ring ma Magazine 175-pound champion Jean Pascal in the champion's adoptive Quebec City hometown. Hopkins was dropped twice in the first three rounds by the very awkward and aggressive champion. Despite an early deficit due to the two knockdowns, Hopkins completely dominated the second half of the, of the fight to secure a draw and immediate rematch five months later. On May 21, 2011, Hopkins, now a tender 46-year-old boxer, totally dominated Pascal over the entire 12 rounds to win a comfortable decision and once again become the lineal reigning light heavyweight champion of the world. Hopkins' second reign as 175-pound champion last, lasted less than 11 months after a pair of fights versus former champion Chad Dawson. After the first fight ended in a controversial no contest, Dawson completely outclassed the 47-year-old Hopkins on April 28, 2012. Once again, the world pronounced that B-Hop was finished. Once again, Hopkins set to prove them wrong. On March 9, 2018, 2013, my bad, the now 48-year-old Hopkins once again spat in the face of Father Time by totally dominating and bullying the 31-year-old IBF light heavyweight champion, Tavares Cloud, over 12 rounds to regain a portion of the light heavyweight title. Then on April 19, 2014, the 49-year-old Hopkins defeated WBA 175-pound champion Babu Shumanoff to unify both versions of this light heavyweight title. Hopkins then signed to, find a, to fight the boogeyman of the division, the WBO champion from Russia, Sergey Kovalev, on November 8, 2014. Finally, two months short of his 50th birthday, Father Time finally ca caught up to the Philadelphia Sage. Kovalev gave Hopkins a one-sided thudding over 12 rounds to unify all three alphabet titles. Hopkins unwisely tried his hand one last time before retiring for good. On December 17, 2016, just a month shy of his 52nd birthday, Hopkins fought 175-pound contender Joe Smith in what he hoped would be a triumphant end to his career. This was not to be as Hopkins suffered the same fate as the legendary Sugar Ray Leonard Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali did by taking a severe beating way past his prime. The end of Hopkins' illustrious career came in the eighth round. Smith staggered Hopkins and landed five booming power shots that knocked Hopkins completely out the ring. Finally, the Hopkins' unparalleled run past the age of 40 had come to a violent end. Hopkins ended his career with a record of 55-8-2 with 32 knockouts. 
Hopkins overcame a childhood of poverty and criminal behavior to become the 17th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. He is the poster child that one can overcome their criminal past to become both a, both a professional and financial success in life and is one of the most inspirational boxers in the history of the sport. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, it was my pleasure to talk to you guys, uh, continue with the great feedback. Once again, any questions, go to Twitter, hashtag, hashtag AskRobSilva. Until next week, be blessed and be a blessing. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.